Well, welcome to another episode of Part of the Gaps, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps between the church and the culture. My name is Aaron Edwards, and I'm joined by the wonderful and ever effervescent apologist, Andy Bannister. How are you on this fine morning, young sir? Well, I'm very impressed that you can say words like effervescent at you know eight o'clock in the morning because this is we're doing an early morning recording. I don't think listeners at Aaron always appreciate the lengths and the and the pain and the suffering I know we go through to record part of the gaps for them. It's you know I, I it almost it, it does make us feel a little bit like Paul you know in two Corinthians we talk about being beaten by rods and you know at night at a, a day and night at sea and things like that. It's very similar. You're sitting at home recording podcasts can be a a laborious task, of course, at this this early hour. Yeah. I find myself thinking that when we are, you know, united as part of the great family of God and the new heavens and the new earth, some Western Christians, particularly, and probably ourselves included, are going to get a bit of a shock. We immediately possible Paul, well, yeah, mate, we suffered. You'll go, oh, what happened? Were you shipwrecked? Were you beaten? <laughs> yes, um, the coffee went cold before the podcast was over. So, go, I, right. I, I, we are not really in quite the same league. That's right, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Yes, our, our suffering barely barely passes the uh, the test, does it? Um, so, yeah, um, how, what have you been up to this last week? Have you been any... Uh, well, I've been on holiday. Been exci- been you're, you're usually somewhere exciting, aren't you? Well, I, we, were, we, were in, we were in Dorset, or Darset, to, to give it the, uh, the the correct pronunciation. Which, which is, is a, a county, a county in England, A county of on the south coast of uh, of England in particular it's known as uh, as the UK's it's known as the, the Jurassic coast because it is like the there are fossils sort of almost like falling out of the of the rock uh mm. there on the coast so it was great so you know we went, got to go to the beach with our kids we gave them a little hammer and they went off and found, and found dinosaurs uh by which I do not mean they found me sunbathing so yeah they were very excited the kids <laughs> found some little ammonites which are the, some of the easiest fossils to, to find the little spirals that you find uh. in the rock so they came back with buckets of rock uh, which That's now exciting. we know it, and if we suggest throwing it out, there's great stress that uh, you know that that particular bit of rock, <laughs> even though it's got no fossils in it, is still significant. So no, we we were in, in sunny Dorset uh, for a week, and uh, and and you've been travelling too, right? You've been rather south. You've been west, I think. I've been North Wales, yes, which yeah, has been really cool. Yeah, we've been there before, but we, yeah, we went to North Wales, and uh, uh, we're staying uh, at, a, at a coastal town in North Wales. Uh, at the at the behest of a really a, a kind gift from someone who let us stay in a, a, a holiday house they had for a week, so that was really nice. So I, I still had a few things I had to do that week, but it was still uh, lovely to be there and, you, and to go on a sandy beach in Britain. Which growing up in Brighton on pebbly beaches, thinking yes. this is all we've got here, we have to go abroad to go on the sand. But really, only because we never really went to the other coasts in Britain, which had all sorts of nice sandy beaches, as I'm sure they do down southwest way. Yes, you know, I have to say one of the nicest. One of the nicest beaches I ever found in the UK was I remember the first time I went to the far northwest of Scotland, up onto mm. uh, you know up onto the sort of uh, sort of sky and that part of the country up there, beautiful, and they've got these you know crystal clear waters. It looks like the Mediterranean, mm. white mm. sandy beaches. It just looks spectacular. And then you put your foot in the water, and you realise <laughs> you are not the Mediterranean because I had never experienced water so cold so you've got yeah beautiful beaches in the world I think in Scotland but some of the the temperatures do not match that's right I I I felt that similar actually it was quite it wasn't so cold North Wales but it still had the British feel about it um of of the sea not not really matching up to what you expect on holiday but North Wales is very Mediterranean 
um, in this sort of feel because it's got this wonderful bays with these mountains there, yes. and you can, you're driving on these coastal roads right right on the coast, um, and it's yeah beautiful, beautiful to be there. But it, it did help me with a sermon analogy actually. I uh, I preached a couple of days ago um, when I was when I was edging into the water with my children who were on bodyboards. Um, and they had wetsuits. Of course, I didn't. And you know, when you go into the water and you feel you're half in, um, and you're not really committing, <laughs> you're not really committing to going fully in. So your top half is kind of exposed. So every drop of water feels like a kind of attack upon you because you're kind of, you know, the, the further you walk in, it's just a little bit more. And each time it goes up your body, it's just horribly painful. Whereas obviously, if you go fully immersed, if you're fully in, you don't feel the the pain so much. It becomes normally part of the, uh, part there, of the um... whole. Experience. Is there a metaphor for baptism there? I'm, I'm sensing. You know, the whole kind of. It's, it's well, you as... know, I, I didn't want to. Yeah, there's, there's, that's that's what those people, uh, sprinklers amongst us. The Anglican sprinklers amongst us might the Anglican, uh, the Anglican, might, Anglican uh, take that issue like uh, with that. some of that. That sounds like a gadget that you might install, an Anglican sprinkler. If the theology gets a bit too, I don't know, conservative, then the Anglican sprinkler goes off. And uh, you know, it senses the it senses the smoke. <laughs> that's <laughs> right, exactly. It deploys an umbrella, oh, you, so you can explore church. That's right, that's right. Whenever if there's something problematic, um, you know, that's when the sprinkler tends to go off. So if they hear a word that's problematic, oh, I don't know, in in a prayer, for example, that might be something that sends off the sprinkler, sends the uh, the SWAT team in who come in and and combat the combative uh, types who are trying to uh, trying to um, argue for sound doctrine. That's that's not a bad segue, actually. That's that's not as well, segues go. That's one of our better ones to what we want to talk right. about. Because while while you were uh, getting your uh, your upper part of your body frozen to death in the seas of North Wales, <laughs> and while I was relaxing on the on the sun, watching my kids hit rocks with hammers in Dorset, the the Anglicans have been at play. It's been General Synod uh, has, has started kicked off kicked off last week. You know, I mean to go. I mean, one of the most exciting events in the calendar. Talk about the World Cup. You can talk about yeah, you know, Glastonbury <laughs> but beating them all is a uh, is general flawed. <laughs> and so, lots of Anglicans. I'm not sure what the collective term for a group of you know higher Anglican clergy is. A, 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 con- a confusion, a collaboration, uh, <laughs> a confusion know, of clergy, confusion <laughs> of clergy, and. Um, and one of them has made sort of made headlines, didn't he? One 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 particular mm. archbishop. Um, mm. Do you want to sort of uh, t- explain what what's happened? And then we may even listen to said archbishop uh, for the yes. first time on one of the gaps. We have we have outside audio. Very exciting. We'll build that up. Keep listening. But um, but uh, but 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 sum- summarize for us what what happened. Yeah. So it was uh, St- Stephen Cotterill, and uh, we he's obviously expressed his views on. Um, unsound things before um, so he was speaking uh, at Synod and referring to trying to really apologize as many people increasingly do today for parts of the Bible that don't really conform with our our new secular lords um, and so it was interesting that he was apologizing not only for something that you'd almost expect you'd, you'd expect the kind of apologies for texts that people just don't talk about so if they come up in the lectionary as anglicans would tend to use um in one of the, you know, the, the texts that, that appear on this on a cycle uh, that may be read out in the in public worship you wouldn't you'd sort of imagine that there are a lot of those texts that get airbrushed or just get vaguely mentioned or, or skirted over but this was a pretty central <laughs> text uh, it was the lord's prayer and so he's apologising mm. for the language in the Lord's Prayer, effectively trying to be pastorally sensitive to those who would find the 
language of Father God um, problematic. And that was the term problematic coming up. And of course, that's a term that, that it's just really interesting, isn't it? It comes up all the time. And now it's another one of these great examples of, I, I think, secular um, ways of trying to deal with problems and diagnose problems uh, coming into the church because of the way that tends to have this emotive connotation. This is problematic. It triggered me in some way. Now, of course, people are will be triggered if that's the word we want to use. They will be offended or maybe grieved by certain experiences they've had in their life, um, and that then gets projected back as the problem, not being, let's say, the perpetrator against them as a victim, if indeed they have been a victim and haven't aren't really a victim of some kind of ideological infiltration, which is more the, the case of I feel like a victim, and the narrative is telling me I have to keep cultivating that victimhood. Um, that's one sense of looking at it, but really what they're doing is then projecting that sense of pain that they may have experienced or maybe elevated in that ideology back onto objective truth, back onto God himself, back onto the, the word of God. And so I think that's what we're seeing here. Another classic example of um, big church leaders being embarrassed by something that Christians have believed, felt, prayed, known for m- millennia. And so I think this is a an interesting thing for us to kind of dive into, isn't it? It is. So let's have a, let's have a listen to a little a little mm. clip of uh, of Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of uh, of York, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll dig into some of the issues here. For if this God to whom we pray is Father, and yes, I know the word Father is problematic for those whose experience of earthly fathers has been destructive and abusive. And for all of us who have laboured rather too much from an oppressively patriarchal grip on life. So I'll just pause it there. because I think the first thing that interested me here, Aaron, straight away is to go, like so many of these things, I think some of, some of the reason why some of this stuff is, is dangerous and, and destructive is it always starts with an element of truth, doesn't it? This kind mm. of stuff never starts with something that's so out, out from left field. You know, mm-hmm. if, if he stood there and said, well, I think there's a possibility that Jesus might actually be an alien, you'd go, mm-hmm. okay, this is nuts. <laughs> Just switch off. But the, <laughs> the reality is, as you intimated a moment ago, you know, some people have had problems with their, their fathers. We live in, an, I would say, in a culture, particularly in the West, where there's a real crisis of fatherhood. The number mm-hmm. of kids growing up in homes where there isn't a father or people have had bad relationships with fathers. That's absolutely, totally true. And as Christians, we want to be sensitive to that but then the massive leap comes and go well the way we deal with that rather than support those people and help those people and particularly help people come to understand that actually one of the joys of our relationship with god in christ is we have a a, a heavenly father who is not those things who is the Mm. absolute model of what fatherhood should look like of which our failed human fathers are even at their very best just a poor reflection at their mm. worst are an absolute travesty rather than help people connect to true fatherhood it's like well let's let's mm. throw the whole model of fatherhood out Let, let's mm. let's question it let's let's raise some issues here and by the way mm. for folks who are not aware of the background here there was actually for the last i think six months in the church of england there has been a working group whenever you hear the word working group oh. you know, be afraid be very afraid there is a working group <laughs> in the church when we're working on the whole issue of gendered language there's been a growing mm-hmm. pressure to you know to sort of not refer to god in gendered terms so you know for every time that god is referred to as father we should refer to god as as mother because god is mm-hmm. neither male or female so 
Stephen's comments are not coming in a in a vacuum. There is a broader there is a broader issue here, isn't there? Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There's, it's it's part of the wider cultural issues. It's interesting you said there that it's not like he came in and said Jesus is an alien, because though obviously someone isn't saying that, like I, I, had a I can see that, by the way, just FYI, yeah, yeah, well, I had a friend who was an Anglican curate who was going for, going through ministry training who literally believed that Jesus was an, was an alien. He was uh, about 20 years ago studying at, uh, I forget, the, one of the very liberal Anglican training colleges, Cudderston, I think. Yeah. I like, oh, yeah, Cudderston. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. winding me up. And no, he believed that Jesus no. was, was an alien. Well, there are ways people could get to that, I think, because that, because when you when you kind of remove the personality of who God is, um, mm. and when you don't, and you and we become increasingly uncomfortable and find problematic the idea, for example, that Jesus, that the Son of God beca- is the Son of God, basically the Son of God, and not the Son and Daughter of God, and then He became not just a human, but He became male, and that's just obvious. That's completely clear that that is the case. That Jesus became male, and so. That had purpose in it, and and our only response to that is, to, you know, for, for liberals would be to say, or progressives, whatever term they want to use for themselves, um, would would tend to be, oh, that's just because he felt he had to do that during that culture because they wouldn't have listened to a woman coming along. I just don't think, well, yeah, he's God; he could do whatever he wants, and I think he can make himself heard if he wants to make himself heard. He's not going to bow to the patriarchal culture of the ancient world and go, oh, I'm so sorry, we couldn't possibly tell you what I really think. And so I have to subtly bring it in, which is why I've come as a man, just to, just so you guys who are such terrible misogynists can understand. And I'm yes. going to choose 12 men as my disciples, just so that they can really, again, bed it in. And then eventually I'm going to, I'm going to sort of, you know, release the Holy Spirit to you. And then you can, um, you know, you can get on with building the church. And when you do that, you're going to write a lot of letters which say some stuff. And in those letters, I still want you to say stuff which uh, sounds kind of patriarchal as well. Um and doesn't seem to say what, what the liberals now want, want it to say. But I'm going to put some tiny little clues in the text here and there, which might make some people in the 21st, 20th, 21st century kind of find those hidden gems which are there. So so I just think for me, this is the wider issues, as you say, are, are in the culture, but they're also just this, this pattern within these denominations, especially the likes of Methodism, URC, and Anglicanism, where we've just accepted, we've just accepted this sort of like torrent coming year after year, which kind of erodes slightly more of what we used to believe was necessary to stand up for. Um, and so it reminds me even of a, uh, a sermon I heard at Cliff College, actually, many years ago. You know that old place. There's a whole story there, isn't there? But uh, there a, is. a, Methodist, a Methodist minister came to do a, a visiting sermon. Um, this was someone who I think he used to teach uh, here and there on, on the program that I ran and was kind of hoping that he might be invited back and... Uh, he uh, he would not be after, um, after not only after this but for various other reasons. But I heard this sermon. It was about the prodigal son. So he read the text out of the Jesus's text of the prodigal son, and then he the first thing he said was, "Firstly, I just need to say I need to apologise for all the women in the room to all the women in the room that there are no women mentioned in this text. That it's just about a father and a son and a brother, and that there are no women here." And then there's a long pause, and I'm like, okay, so you just apolog- you're apologizing not only for your own benefit, you're apologizing on Jesus's behalf here, um, because you think that you're nicer than Jesus, you're kind of, you know, you're more inclusive than Jesus is. He chose not to include a woman in that story for whatever reason, because that's what the story is, and there's something significant theologically about the father and son relationship. 
Um, and you think that actually somehow you've had it revealed to you that you can apologize for that now and say, actually, Jesus made some kind of mistake. But then he adds this other caveat and goes, but maybe the fact that there aren't women in this story is their story. Maybe that is their story because they've been you know, oppressed for so long. And that's kind of Jesus is indirectly trying to show that actually oh. this is I'm making this very subtle Socratic point, which I'm not going to tell you about. and I'm not going to demonstrate how I could possibly think that that's the case. But eventually a Methodist minister in, in you know, in the 2020, in the 21st century is going to find this clue that I hid there all along and then realize that the prodigal son is really about women. Um being oppressed, and I just think this is this is the kind of nonsense that we've been tolerating for so long yeah. that we've and because of the emotive connotations, because people actually have been really badly hurt by men, really bad men, um, and there have been like misogynistic, chauvinistic systems in place in all sorts of ways in churches as well. It gives this license to just say, well, because there's hurt, felt hurt, anything goes almost. So I can just chuck out and not chuck out the Bible, just. Pour some scorn over it. Pour some shadow over the light so it doesn't seem as light and aggravating to you because you don't like the light anymore, if that makes sense. Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't on, 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 on so many levels. It reminds me, too, this is a slight, this is a slight tangential point, but not, not unimportant. I think one of the other issues going on in some of these denominations, because there's been this un, unhooking from the authority of scripture, a theme that we return mm. to regularly, of course, on part of the gaps mm. is then, as you say, everything becomes feelings and everything becomes culture and so on. And we've had a, an increasing history and trend now in these dominations where huge parts of them and the huge parts of the leaders within them are not taught how to exegete uh, uh, scripture or how to construct sermons. I was reminded of this last week. I boggled my mind. I came across a tweet from some, you know, probably probably lovely individual. You know, young young vicar. Um, I forget where in the country she was a priest. Um, and she and, and she there's a thread she started on Twitter about sermon preparation. And she was like, "Oh, I got up at, at seven thirty this morning on Sunday to prepare my sermon and managed to get it done by eight fifteen. And I was like, "So you prepped for forty five minutes?" And then I was looking at the thread, and there were other young vicars. Not just I want to be careful. Not just women, men too. But obviously, all of us say sort of going yes, sort of sharing this whole sort of like boast of going how quickly they prepared a sermon, and other people saying yes, I often do it on a Sunday morning too. I find that works quite well. If I get up early, I can in an hour or so get four or five points kind of done. And the back of my mind was uh, that went to you know Tim Keller a few years ago. Now I know his example puts a lot of conservatives to shame. I remember reading an interview with him where somebody had asked about about his preaching and the and the depth. Mm -hmm of it and the amount of work that must have gone into craft his sermons. And he remember him saying behind each of my sermons, he said, there is on average about 60 hours of reading. He said, I do about 35 to 40. And then Kathy, his wife does another 20 to 25. And then she will, you know, summarize and, and, and share with me what she's learned. And all that then comes in. So like, Wow, 60, 60 hours of reading. So what, so um, she was like, well, I didn't know. So she was like a kind of, sermon assistant like she was reading for yeah, the purpose of the sermon i didn't know that yes yeah, so it was really interesting that he, he he called her out and honored her for the work that she does you know reading right. and reflecting and and, and and feeding him stuff and actually you know some of his books actually he's co he, co he co-authored with with kathy but my point being is that you got 60 hours of thought and reflection and i think that's before mm. you even sit down and start constructing yeah. the message that's the, the ensuring that you've got mm. content going mm. in but by contrast um, 
in some parts of the church today, I think you have this sort of sense of, right, let's rush three or four bullet points out. Mm. And like your Methodist friend at Cliff College, mm. with all due respect, that sounds like a similar kind of thing, right? Here's what I'm preaching on, you know, liberal social justice is a big thing for me, right? Let's scribble out three or four points that I'll throw out. Um, whereas if you'd even picked up a commentary and done a little bit of reading, mm. you'd go, you wouldn't find that. I mean, I've, like you, read some fairly sort of I've read fairly widely in some of the happier hunting grounds of liberal theology I, that's the first I've heard anyone try that particular line on <laughs> well <laughs> they're, not, they're not here in the text so therefore yeah. I should make and of course by the way the sad thing is your earlier point about you know the suggestion that you know God somehow couldn't transcend kind of gender and so forth you know mm. God knew he was doing the incarnation and by the way that God could equally transcend gender stereotypes than he wanted to the the, the exhibit yeah. for me if you wanted to argue on that go for the women at the tomb that, that you yeah. know god could have had male witnesses it could be the, the male disciples who got there first it wasn't mm. in all four of the gospel accounts and that's yeah. a beautiful piece of evidence actually for the authenticity of the resurrection stories yeah that the women yeah. were an embarrassment actually mm. um yeah in that, in that and they didn't and they didn't believe them like, they had yeah. to, they actually sh- yeah yeah and they didn't I, believe yeah, them had to go and check yeah. and find Resurrection. Yeah. So, so point yeah. is, you also actually, ironically, you miss the stuff when you go the sort of Stephen Cottrell liberal Anglican mm. route of messing around. With, you actually miss the good stuff that yeah. is there because it's phenomenal yeah. stuff yeah. in in, exactly. in the gospel. And and I think the um, I mean, there's a whole uh, yeah. We'll put, I'll put the uh, sermon prep tangent aside. We should do a whole set episode on sermon prep stuff as a thing. But but and uh, one tiny other thing, by the way, as you started to say the um thing about the uh, female vicar. And, and for some reason, this is probably must be my patriarchal mindset coming in. Um, Absolutely. I, 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 I did an about take when you said she. Then, and then first in our transgender world, I kind of thought, I, I thought of a meme that I saw this week, which I found particularly amusing on Twitter, which was something like um, what dating, what we were told that 2023 would look like, that we'd have all these flying cars and things like that. What 2023 actually looks like. And it had a guy on a date with a woman's, uh, this is what dating looks like in 2023. And it said, so have you always been a woman? <laughs> that's kind of like his first kind of like line as, as how things work because you naturally hear pronouns now you go he and she and you're kind of like well you know who, how do we know this is this or this or he or he but it does come back to what we're talking about here relating to god in terms of the pronouns we'd use for god because you know as you say that there's um there's things that people can throw they, they can throw out the things that are in scripture because because they they don't they don't pass the test they don't pass the the kind of inclusivity test of how we've decided to and um, talk about these things and think about these things and and the, the lack of genuine biblically informed thought is really showing up now i think it's showing up the lack of depth so yeah depending regardless of how many hours people put in or whether, whether they have an assistant reading for them or reading this amount of stuff or whatever it, it's about wh- where there's integrity and depth in, in your conviction mm. um in terms of scripture and what you're willing to say about scripture and not willing to say about it and and i think those are the things that, that show up really because you can do hours and hours of prep for stuff and read loads of commentaries and that be worse for a sermon for example it could be worse for your view of scripture if you read so many of these newfangled commentaries so like i'm sure um that kind of line of reading that i heard from that method methodist guy will be somewhere in the commentary it probably will be because the, the kind of postmodern nonsense you get you know i was an english lit student so i know the kind of crazy stuff that can be done to text the author doesn't matter anymore the death of the author is the literary theory and when there's no author, you can literally play fast and loose with the text. So you'd be sitting, I'd be sitting there in English lit seminars as a student, hearing people just say complete nonsense 
um, that they're reading. And all the, maybe this is a phallic symbol of this thing here, or maybe there's this this kind of theme here. You'd be like, there's just no, that isn't what that isn't what this 16th century writer is imagining at this particular point. I mean, that there may be uh, lots of validity in other senses of it, but it didn't really matter. The death of the author was the theory that governed everything um, by Derrida. And so we didn't really have to worry about whether God cared to insert this or not. It's just kind of a, a playground for us to mess around with our own ideas. And God is constantly revealing how wonderfully creative we are in revealing new things to us. And we can just use the language of the Holy Spirit to basically baptize anything that we think is a good idea at any given cultural moment. And that's what so many of these very sophisticated, very highly trained, very well-read um, bishops mm. and leaders in many ch- in established churches uh, and I'd use that term as, as broadly as possible um, in terms of established, just just very well-rooted and well-respected and represented with lots of funding and lots of buildings and all the stuff that normally comes with an institution, they, they just tend to have this sort of license they feel sometimes to just go with whatever the cultural moment is and then, and then find a way to make the text fit. And I just find it increasingly mm. offensive, actually, as a Christian who cares about the authority of yes. Scripture, just to see leaders who are going to be reported upon in the national press, that's why. So I know that Stephen Cottrell will probably get be really annoyed, and, and loads of people will def- have defended him. Said, "Oh, he's been taken out of context." Rowan Williams used to say that all the time. Whenever he'd say something very nuanced that would that would get soundbited, he'd be really annoyed. Like, why don't they understand my incredibly complex, nuanced way of doing it? Well, you're the Archbishop of Canterbury. You don't, you know, you don't get to put out a very you, you, obviously you should have nuance, and, but there are ways of communicating nuance with understanding how things are going to be read in in a, a kind of wider context, especially if you're right. at that, that kind of level. Well, there's, there's almost an irony, actually, I was thinking about this because I'm just um, beginning to do some writing on on atheism again, and it struck mm. me of going, you know, you look at, say, I mean, it, it's died a death to some extent, but you look at, say, the new atheism movement of going, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens mm. and, and Dennett and, and all those new atheists were able to communicate their atheism in a form that really had traction. People understood what they mm. thought, they didn't have, you know, Dawkins, I'm okay. Anyone, anyone in the public eye is occasionally being misrepresented, but he didn't have to go, well, hang on, I actually meant this. Going, mm-hmm. So there is there is something has gone wrong, and this ties mm-hmm. into our earlier episode a few weeks ago on what's gone wrong with Christian the Christian Academy of mm-hmm. going, I think something has gone wrong because you produce this, um, you know, we produce this kind of sort of type of sort of very erudite theologian who can, you say, mm-hmm. play, play with words, pontificate mm-hmm. around all over the place, but actually... Mm-hmm can't construct a clear, a clear statement on, mm. on anything. But the other thing you said there, Aaron, I want to that made me gave me pause for thought, that comment that they're well read, I think that's mm. the thing that I keep finding frustrating here because I don't think there is a there is a well readness in that one of the things that mm. struck me when I was doing theological education, okay, it was 20 years ago now, but I know from friends who are going through theological education today, the same holds true. If you are a conservative you know, who holds, uh, you know, believes in the authority of scripture and believes the historic tenets of the Christian faith, you have to work doubly hard because you have to read the liberal stuff so you can engage with it and respond to it and critique it and be aware of it because it will get thrown at you. And of course, you have to read your own stuff to make sure that you are properly equipped and trained to handle the word of God and be able to you know, communicate the faith and so on and so forth. Whereas I think meet a lot of folks coming out of more liberal institutions who haven't the first clue what is going on in more conservative scholarship mm. and to go. Mm. So what I find fascinating when I listen to the likes with the greatest respect, I'm sure he's a lovely guy. I listen to, to Stephen, you know, my takeaway from this is going, 
you're not up to date. You haven't engaged with really good, you know, evangelical theology. You haven't engaged with 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 feminist writers who would disagree with you because there are plenty of mm. Christian feminists I know who would actually still struggle with this language. Um, and by the way, you're not reading culture properly because this is not the big issue in culture mm. right now. Like when we talked about with the LGBT stuff in the past, one of the massive issues right now is you know through immigration, which we've also done a, a show on. Um, the co- the country is incre- mm. increasingly more multicultural, and most folks, not all, but most, coming from more traditional cultures, this is not the issue that they're wrestling with. And given mm. that one of the big mission fields that the church needs to be really thinking about is Islam, no Muslim is going to listen yeah. to this. Going, Lord, this is what I've been waiting to hear. Um, this is it. Mm. I, I, I'm abandoning Islam. Uh, you know, no more Allah Akbar <laughs> for me. It's Christianity all the way. Yeah. And so you are yeah. really speaking to this tiny, tiny echo chamber. Um, and lastly on this, by the way, mm. I think one of the things that's driving this, particularly the use of the word problematic, and I found there was quite a few journalists picked up on on this. It wasn't just the fatherhood piece was interesting. His use of the word problematic, that's such a, mm. a kind of you know, zeitgeisty kind of word. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Desperate sort of look at times in the more established churches like the Methodists and the Church of England of wanting mm. to hang with the kids. If we use mm. this kind of language, young yeah. people will go, oh, my word, that's a bishop, man. He just said problematic. Where do I sign? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but right. If you look at the, the parts of the Church of England that are growing uh, and young people are coming into them, they are places that are more theologically orthodox. I mm. mean, I have the, mm. you know, I I joke, yes, I, I critique the Anglican Church as other parts of the church too but i am an anglican i attend an anglican church in where i where i live they're doing a brilliant job i think reaching out mm. to, to Swindon, the town that i live in but you know i look people are, are being are coming in people are becoming christians there's growth it's really exciting to see mm. but people are not being drawn to, to to pattern church because on a sunday our vicar stands up and goes oh fatherhood of god patriarchy he mm. stands up there and preaches a fairly straightforward you know, gospel mm-hmm. message time mm-hmm. and, and time again. Um, yeah. And people are responding. And our church skews yeah. young. We are at the older end of the demographic in our church. And if you look across the Church of England, those churches that are growing and young people are coming to tend to be the more conservative evangelical yeah. ones. People are not flocking to the really weird, wacky bells and smell. Well, that's not yeah. fair. The really wacky no. theological ones because the language is is trendy and time and time again i think we've seen this sad pattern that this attempt to be relevant it fails and those churches that have pursued that route are dying you know Mm. methodism would be another example absolutely (laughs) yeah indeed and and i think that yeah there was an article by daniel french in the spectator this week um where he referred to referring to this entire to the the comments by cottrell and um saying this is basically how he said how is this not cultural and theological vandalism um, because that's precisely what's happening. It's kind of tearing apart those things in order to appeal to the zeitgeist, in order to kind of appeal to the cool kids. I mean, of course, there's you know, progressives now are standing up. There was a debate e- equally this week. Some saying, "Oh no, progressive churches are growing. They are getting people coming to them." Yeah, the the occasional uh, you can po- possibly point to the occasional example where like-minded progressive people will turn up at your church. That doesn't prove that this is a trend across the church. That, that broadly speaking, that are growing. It just means that some people who are pro-diversity, inclusivity in the secular progressive sense may turn up at one or two or three or four churches. Um, that doesn't prove growth. You need to see it sustainably across a long time, across a number of contexts. And you don't just get to point to one or two examples of loads of rainbow flags appearing at the same time in one or in one or two contexts. Um, 
So that's kind of a, an issue. But to get back to the um, kind of issue of what Cottrell was referring to, yes. yeah, I think this is something that comes up a lot. The um, the kind of notion of is is it problematic? Is it problematic? <laughs> I find his language problematic. It's usually the word problematic is problematic. I'm I'm triggered by it. But um, the the issue of is is God as Father something that we can dispense with? And that this is the idea that you lead to. And I don't think Cottrell was saying that because it seems like even in that quote he's saying if God is Father. So so God, I don't think he's saying God isn't Father. Um, but he's doing the problem of apologizing for the language. And I think that's a significant problem in itself. And it leads to so many other um, issues, but we've, we've allowed this to, to erode for too long. And we've not stood up for the fact of why has God revealed himself as father and how pervasively is he referred to by male pronouns in scripture? He's not referred, he's not referred to it by the female pronoun in scripture. We have less than 10 examples where we could say there's a feminine or motherly image for god but it's more like a simile it's more like saying god is like a mother hen in this regard in, in looking after his his young etc so you have some some examples of that but you have all sorts of language that refers to god you anthropomorphic language um we, we refer you're referring to god's arm referring referring to god's feelings and things like this so there are things which are you know, we could argue is divine accommodation that god is sort of communicating himself in our terms but when it refers to his father it's so pervasive it's so theologically important. It's so important that the, that the son of God and the father-son relationship we see depicted in the Gospels isn't simultaneously a mother-daughter relationship, which it would seemingly have to be, or at least a mother-son relationship, if we were to say that God isn't father and that didn't really matter either way. And he was only using that language to communicate something to us or communicating to those terrible misogynists of the ancient world. What about us? You know, what about us wonderful progressives who've cleared ourselves of all that terrible misogyny? Now we're problematized by it. So is that does that mean we've, you know, have we missed the rapture or something? Are we the kind of damned who God doesn't care about anymore? Because he really wanted to communicate to them back then, but he doesn't really care about communicating to us now. So he needs to, you know, raise up some Methodist prophets and Anglican bishops to come and tell us with all of their wonderful zeal and what the real truth is. And I think that's just completely absurd, obviously, um, because theologically the fatherhood of God is is so significant, and arguably, I think I would. I don't. You probably wouldn't agree. It'd be interesting to hear what you say on this, Andy. But I actually think we could. We need to reclaim. I've been thinking about this for many years. Really, we need to reclaim the word patriarchy because it really means rule of the father. Um, and those feminists would tell us that patriarchy means misogyny and chauvinism. It doesn't. Um, theologically, there's a lot more significance, and it stems from the fatherhood of God. So, of course, feminists want to have a go at the fatherhood of God because they see it linked to patriarchy and therefore the system of patriarchy, which they see as just misogyny and men hating women, lording over women in inappropriate ways. But biblically, uh, we absolutely see father rule as a, as a, as a significant, the significant um, role of leadership throughout church and even arguably society. And so there's a lot of people who are starting. You mentioned um, some of these liberals are kind of behind the times, I think you're right, in the sense that there's lots of people now writing about this and speaking about this, but they kind of don't want to engage with it. There's absolutely mm. loads of people writing books about um, how patriarchy actually matters, theologically, if you really think about it. And they haven't had to emphasise it until so many progressives went so far that people have to go, well, I didn't really want to make a big thing about it. I wouldn't really care about this term. But suddenly, oh, actually, now you mention it. Now I have to really yeah. think about how to defend this and go, actually, yeah, the rule of the father is really significant and it, and it, and it is a theological issue yeah 
yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with you on that on the on the rule of the father piece. I, I suppose, yeah, I would want to think about whether the word patriarchy is so hold below the waterline that it's not helpful. But I am a great advocate for reclaiming words. At the same mm. time, I think one of the mistakes that Christians and others actually, not just Christians, one of the mistakes that we've made in a lot of things around culture is we've allowed words to slide. I mean, a really good example mm. of this, just as an aside, without going down this tangent, you mm. mentioned the whole pronoun piece earlier. Yeah, you know, I think a year or even yeah, maybe a year or or so ago, I'd have probably far more taken the view of going, I'll happily use whatever pronoun somebody wants to, because I think that's just kind to refer to people the way they, they want to refer to themselves. I've now shifted on that because I think actually you're giving into what is effectively a delusion, if not action mm-hmm. attempt to, you know, to, to redefine reality. I'll use whatever name somebody wants to call themselves. So if you pop up next time on the podcast and you've renamed yourself Emma, absolutely fine. I will call you whatever name you want to be called. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't sort of say, well, I'm going to refer to to Aaron as, as as she because that's not reality. But the point you made there, though, I think is interesting about the Trinity. Got me thinking because this is again down to the dearth of the dearth of proper theology. And one of the things that, that good mm. theology teaches you to do is follow connections. So if you mess around mm. with something here, there are implications yeah. here. Yeah. And you know, I really first became attuned to that studying Islam because Islam theologically is hopeless. Mm. It's, it's broken all over the place. And so the, the Quran and Islamic theology will make assertions, but then the, the, the follow-through is not explored and you end up in all kinds of mm. bizarre consequences. But then you mm. see the same in Christianity. And a good example of your point there about the father-son uh, relationships within God, if you start tinkering around with that, it's not long before you start tinkering with the whole notion of the Trinity in the first place. I'm reminded there was, yeah. there was, controversy, there was, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of controversy in Scotland a few years ago because uh, there was a Christian speaker um, up there was doing a, a debate uh, with a Muslim in Edinburgh and the Trinity came up and during the course of this debate this this Christian who I vaguely know who's a good guy mm-hmm. but I just think I don't know where his head was that day literally mm-hmm. came out and said well you know yes God is three but theoretically God could be four or five or six or seven maybe he in time will be in <laughs> because Wow! All things are possible. He was exploring the all things being possible and stumbled yeah, yeah. into reinventing the Trinity with yes. a deba- live in a debate with a Muslim, and of course, all, all <laughs> loose. But the point being, once you mess with the fatherhood of God, yeah, that partly defines who God is in terms of his relationships within the Trinity. It affects mm. our what it means to be part of God's family because, because we are adopted into into God's family, and Jesus is our, is our heavenly older elder brother. We can literally we yeah. can call brother is one of the titles we may yeah. use because we are sons yeah. and daughters all that yeah. collapses um the other piece that goes if you're not careful here it occurred to me hmm. if we start questioning the fatherhood of god um because it's quote-unquote problematic the word that that the, hmm. the archbishop cultural use well what where do we stop with that problematic pushing back aaron because hmm. look humanity exactly. is pretty problematic all of us have, to different degrees, problems yeah. with fellow human beings. Some of us have been treated monstrously by fellow human mm. beings. If you're a if you're a Ukrainian and you've suffered your country being invaded and the horrible abuses committed by the Russian army, um, you probably you I would not blame you for having a fairly low view of humanity. So, is it therefore problematic to say that Jesus took on flesh and became human? Why not just open it up and say, well, he became a mammal, uh, he, beca- he became a life. <laughs> Um, yeah. It became physical. Let's, we'll take the word human out. Now, people listening to this mm. may go, oh, Andy, you've gone off on one. But given that we've already seen this Gnostic tendency in culture that pops mm. up in mm. things like transgenderism and so forth, yeah. 
You almost wonder that it's the the, the 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 camel's nose of Gnosticism again sticking yeah. its head on the tens of going, well, material things don't matter. And then one last thought, um, and uh, and then back to you on this is the other thing that struck me. And I was reading in my devotions this morning, I was reading in the Psalms, um, and just really struck by because I was, you know, thinking about mm. recording this episode, you know, the number of times that the psalmist will use that imagery of God being the rock the stronghold, the, the tower, the fortress, mm. you know, David particularly, you know, cry when, when he's in trouble, crying out to the Lord to be his rescuer. Well, that mm. is a more masculine image. You can't get away from the fact that, yes, we have, you know, yes, there are women in the military and firefighting and police and so on and so mm. forth. But if you look at the statistics, even in our most progressive societies here in the UK, in Scandinavia, where you have, you know, almost complete gender equality. If you look at the stats for the number of men who die in their professions, mm. saving others versus women, it is still when mm. people are dying on in those contexts, it is overwhelmingly men. It is overwhelmingly men who are laying down their lives in the military. It's men who are dying in industrial accidents. It is agriculture. Mm. It's an interesting stat I came across recently. It's the most dangerous profession in the UK mm. in terms of the number of people who die. And again, look at the stats, predominantly men. There is something about masculinity when it's at its best. And yes, mm. there, there, there can be misogyny. Mm. Everything goes wrong. Our humans take all the good things God has given us and we have a tendency of breaking them. But mm. masculinity, when it's functioning as God intended, then there is that protective quality. And mm. part of your role mm. as a father to your kids is to be mm. that protector to your family. Part yeah. of my role to yeah. my family is to be that protector. Uh, you know, your wife, Molly, my wife, Astrid, bring different mm. parts of the family. Um, mm. But I think the biblical role model, the biblical template for human society, human family, is that there is that protective, self-sacrificial mm. role. And in the New Testament, yeah. we are commanded as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, yeah. we are commanded to be prepared to lay our lives down. And I think if you yeah. rip the fatherhood aspect out of the character of God or you start downplaying it or messing around with it, mm. you lose that whole quality and it's interesting isn't it that when mm. when you hear people talk about wanting to talk about the motherhood of god and there's more feminine images mm. there are a few there in scripture there are some um but they're not they're not they're not, they're not not the main ones by a long way what tends to be said is we want we want those com those compassionate those caring images mm. there well aside from the fact that you could actually argue is deeply anti-male because men can be those things too but you can be a compassionate mm. father and a strong mm -hmm. protector mm -hmm. not absolutely it's yeah. also the, the sort of triumph of the therapeutic coming through, isn't it? Mm. I think we live in a culture where many of us want, if we are tempted to want, you know, God is the compassionate one who pats us on the shoulder and goes, there, 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 don't worry, it's all okay. Mm. Live your best life, yeah. be who you want to be. I'm not going to raise any questions. But we're reacting against the God mm. who may, who mm. is who is the strength, the protector, but also the God who's going to stand there and go, I'm not going to take any nonsense. This yeah. issue you yeah. have to deal with and we need to deal with it. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the theological piece here about the kind of mm. God we've constructed, we've constructed the God as therapist and we've mm. forgotten, mm. Or increasingly forgotten what it means for God to be king and ruler and judge and Lord and, and, and father and protector. Absolutely. That's a really, really good point. I think God as therapist could be uh, your next book, I think, Andy. Um, how have we created God as the therapist? But <laughs> Bannister on the couch. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought there's a scripture that comes to mind <clears throat> from... Um, Ephesians three, fourteen. If you just think of this in relation to how, let's say, feminism um, tries to make us think that even the notion of a father is a bad idea, which I think links in, by the way, to pride, which is why I think LGBT stuff and feminism are not—they uh, are—they are connected. So when you tolerate feminism, you also are tolerating potentially 
what Pride does, which is the queering, literally the kind of weeding out of uh, the foundations for male and female. Um, and, and we just see that going in all sorts of crazy directions. But lots of feminists go, oh, goodness, that's... Uh, and I mean, even evangelical feminists go, oh, goodness, I didn't, I didn't agree with that. No, that's all terrible. That's all ridiculous stuff. But actually, you've already started undermining the principles of what maleness and femaleness, femaleness are uh, in, in the kind of created form. And with that um, becomes a kind of negative view of the father, of what a father is or isn't. Because we've seen, as you say, the bad examples of fathers, the many bad examples of fathers, um, but actually, we do need to think of the father as a positive thing with God as our role model. So when we are bad fathers, it's because we're actually not being uh, following in the in the direction of the father who we are uh, called to worship, rather than, let's say, our father, the devil, which actually we also hear referred to. We hear the devil referred to as father in a negative way um, as well by Jesus himself. So there's a sense of um, that being a there's, there's there's good fathers and bad fathers. God is the supreme father. He's the epitome of what a father is supposed to be. So what he, how he exhibits himself is how we are to be. And of course, yes, God is referred to as a as, as a mother hen at times. But so does Paul. The apostle Paul refers to himself in, in one Thessalonians as a, as a, like a mother hen. And so are we are we therefore to say that Paul is actually a woman as well. Are we, are we supposed to make Paul a kind of trans Paul or something because he gives himself a simile in, in with the, within a certain kind of action. And um, that's clearly not what we're talking about here. There's something deeper, more significant. So here's Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the father, that problematic father, uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And I just think, you, you think about that, the notion of this father figure birthing everything <laughs> out of himself. and um, and then generously giving to it, but from a place of authority, I think a feminist would look, could look at that and go, isn't that so problematic? Isn't that why we have misogyny and male dominance? Because we have this idea that God is the one who's in control, and therefore he's the one who's benevolently giving. So even when he's loving us, it's still bad and problematic because he's still the one who gets to be in control. The father rule, which mm. we've seen in households and churches and societies, have been, have been so terrible. But actually, this is why I think we must recover a more robust unashamed biblical stance with these this stuff because the worse more crazy the culture gets on gender we've realized many evangelicals i hope are starting to realize they certainly many that i've been connecting with who are realizing this afresh within the last three or four years um the stuff in the bible that we have just overlooked which we didn't realize was there and i, I came across a book someone in my church um um recommended to me which you'll you remember uh, which i presume has just fallen into the ether of of uh, of a uh, egalitarian uh, consciousness or something or it's been kind of buried somehow but it was a book by david pawson um called leadership is male with a very i would say problematic front cover of a, of a tie which is quite interesting all sorts of connotations um yeah leadership is male and he was really arguing for the connection between fatherhood and why male femaleness needs to be understood in this in this sense and he's and he even kind of says um there's a quote in his postscript in this book where he says He's wrestling with the idea, of course, that, you know, God isn't male in the sense of um, has a sexuality uh, or has, 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 a, has a biological sex, even though Jesus did, Jesus became male. We wouldn't necessarily have to say that God doesn't exhibit some kind of feminine traits, but actually, so, but the way that God expresses himself in scripture, it's more likely that, that you see that, that what you were saying earlier, Andy, about the, in the Psalms, for example, those kind of masculine fatherly traits which we associate with which aren't just cultural stereotypes that we then 
purport back, which is what all the feminist has to say. Oh, you're just you've got this idea of a father and a man, and what what is comfortable for you, and therefore you want that to be how God is. So you just kind of project that back to God. But it gets really, really messy because people then end up saying the Bible writers who are inspired by God, he inspired them to project their own cultural projections back on in how they depicted God. So it gets into process theology really god kind of changes or he or he reveals himself differently as you say he could become a a, a, a beyond a trinity he could become a kind of quartet a, what would you want a quartology i don't know what you'd say quintology something like that and and, and continue to grow and reveal so you end up really just moving away from how god has revealed himself to us authoritative authoritatively and here's mm. a quote from this book this is quite out there okay because it's a text we never go to he references 1 corinthians 11 uh, head covering stuff, right? So we're not going to get into head coverings, but the theological point Paul makes in and around that is quite important. Is it is nearer the truth to think of God as masculine rather than feminine. This may explain Paul's unusual and asymmetrical statement in 1 Corinthians 11, that man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So though Genesis 1 reveals that God gave his image to male and female alike, Genesis 2 reveals that man received it in a direct way and women in the derived way, as 1 Corinthians 11, 8 to 9 goes on to say. Well, that's quite out there because we are so used to not reading 1 Corinthians 11 because most churches don't you know, adhere to head coverings. They miss the theological point Paul makes, which is actually when he creates Adam, um, he's saying he's made in my image. And then, of course, woman is, made in, is equally made in God's image, but it's in a derived way from Adam, taken from Adam's rib. And we just, that's really uncomfortable in, a, in an egalitarian feminist society because what do you do with that other than saying, oh, again, God had to communicate it that way to get through to the misogynists who were kind of patriarchally, you know, domineering over everyone. So I think it just gets back to this issue of like, we really need to go back to the Bible, whatever your, your, your final conclusions are and go, what is, what is scripture meaning to communicate here? And can I, if possible, free myself from some of the, um, ties in in my culture which are telling me I have to read things in this way because I don't know how I would apply it otherwise because all these people would have a go at me or whatever. So whatever yeah. conclusion you come to, just be open and honest before the text. Now it could be that if you're really conservative, you could you could bring your own conservative culture to that and, and make inappropriate things. But I think it's far more likely in our culture that we're going to bring progressive um, the progressive side because that's what you're going to get in massive trouble for. Um, for, for going against some of those progressive tenets yeah. which we've seen in modern secular society. So ask yourself, is it? are you really getting these conclusions from the Bible? Are you really getting these kind of theological musings about what is or isn't problematic from the Bible? Or are you getting it from uh, the culture? And so that, that's the kind of challenge I, that I come away with thinking about these kind of issues. Yeah, and I agree. And I'm reminded actually of something that uh, you know, C.S. Lewis uh, once made an observation. He wasn't talking so much about scripture on this occasion is talking about literature, but the same point applies where he talks about, you know, the one of the one of the reasons why one should read old books. And I think we had an early part of the gaps episode on the mm. importance of reading old books, is that you allow the fresh, as you put it, the fresh breezes of the ages to blow through. So mm. because you know every culture has its own prejudices. And if you just read stuff from your own culture, then you won't get challenged from outside. But if you read stuff from Absolutely. older cultures, it's not that they were perfect, they had their own faults but they will have errors in different places. And now I think you take that and apply that same idea to scripture, but amplifying it because scripture is the very word of God of going, actually mm. what we need to be doing is allowing scripture to critique our culture, whether it's our national culture or our subcultures. And you're absolutely right. You know, I would not want anyone to hear this yeah. saying, well, you know, Andy, you and Aaron are conservative evangelicals. Therefore you think conservative evangelical is a person. No, it darn well isn't. 
And we've had some horrific yeah. problems, including leadership problems. I mean, look at the recent Mike Pallavacci yeah, scandal. Absolutely. It's the most recent one of going, there is some problems that need dealing with. But the answer is not to go running to the culture and go, okay, what do we copy from secular culture? But to again, mm. come back to scripture. And the other thing that occurs to me, mm. and the problem is, ironically, if you go the kind of sort of, you know, liberal, progressive, you know, Anglicans playing at synod route, if you're not careful ironically you end up in exactly the same position as those christians you know sort of two or three hundred years ago who were critiquing the ability the abolitionists um for wanting to end mm, slavery mm. because they were just following their culture so you look at uh, when when um the likes of uh you, you know john newton and wilberforce and those others were advocating for the end of the slave trade you got there were actual christians arguing against them misusing scripture because they were following the culture the culture was slavery is okay it's the economic backbone of the empire we need to keep it in other words mm. they were just letting scripture be be subdued by their culture ironically, Stephen Contra, mm. who would be horrified at any suggestion he was in bed with the same type of exegesis, is just doing mm. the same thing. Again, on mm. just a different issue. And this side, mm. it's on a more you know, progressive, rather more restrictive issue. And I think it's a constant, constant reminder. And I think this is a great place mm. to draw the threads mm. together this episode, right? Of when you decouple your theology mm. and your practice from scripture, you end up, well, all bets are off, right? Mm. You know, Exactly. Go back to Friedrich Nietzsche, of all people, and the, the mm. horizon has been sponged away. There is no up, there is mm. no down, there is no left, no right. Everything mm. is chaos. Um, mm. Again, it's why, it's one of the beautiful reasons why God has given us scripture and has given us inspiration. Mm. And yeah, we wrestle about it, and yes, we argue about it, and let's not let's not give people, again, the, the, the impression that you can just easily open up scripture and the answer is simply there. Sometimes we have mm. to do the hard work of understanding, like you say, 1 Corinthians 11, difficult mm. passage. But if we use the text as our anchor point and peg that as the centre of our interpretation, mm. then at least we have a fixed point, and it's a it's a good one, mm. not just some mm. weird speech from General Synod. Absolutely, no, really, really good point. And you know, ultimately, it's not God or His Word that is problematic. There are no problematic texts, as I've you know heard said yes. before in some of these debates. That can be an inappropriate way of talking about it. We we we're the difficult ones. We're the problematic ones. Um, and and that we're the ones who are supposed to be shaped by the text, by God's word, and shaped ultimately by God Himself as we're sanctified and drawn um, closer to Him and drawn to be more like Him, which ultimately is what Christ does as His Son, mediate as the Father, the Son of the Father, mediating between us. Um, and I think that's something that we need to kind of yeah get hold of again yeah. and. and and realize that actually we, we so often are the ones who are haughtily placing ourselves above God and his word and saying, we know how we ought, you ought to have said it. We know how you ought to be. We know the kind of pronouns that we would like to use for you or one another or whatever. And actually, we just need to submit ourselves to God and go, what is his word really saying? And uh, yeah, how can I be humbled before him in it? Well, I think that's... Uh... That's a great place to come into land. So I hope you have enjoyed uh, this uh, wide-ranging conversation. I've been Andy Bannister. That's been uh, Aaron Edwards. Uh, I don't have pronouns. I have adjectives. And uh, I hope the episode has been good. I've often thought that, funnily enough, that when, you know, the, the one or two rare occasions anyone's mentioned pronouns, I always like to subvert it and get, I prefer adjectives. Funny, witty, short. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should. We should. We'll come up. We'll come up with the pronoun for part of the gaps. Is the part of the gaps a he or a she, or something That's altogether? Can you, do you have? You can know? you have gendered podcasts? There is exactly indeed the question. And uh, yeah. that's definitely one for another time. Well, thank you for listening. And we'll be back in a week, two weeks time, three weeks time. 
whenever with another episode. <laughs> that. The disclaimer in advance. We'd love it to be a week. It probably will be two weeks. And totally non-triggering uh, podcast that calls itself Follow the Gaps. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you.